0: a sip before we begin. Oh, that's delicious.
1: Drinking Sauvignon Blanc while uh, chatting with the folk. What could be better?
0: <laughs> oh, I like citrusy, ooh, and crisp. This is a fabulous idea. How do you? How do you get a better gig than that? Is this what I want to do with the rest of my life? This is Uncorking a Story with your host,
1: How are you, Mr. Mick? I'm doing fine, Mike. Yeah? Family, all Family's great. Good. You've been doing a lot of traveling, huh? I
0: have. I've, uh... Where have I been? I've been to Dallas and Miami and I'm sure a few other places in the last couple of weeks.
1: Nice. Is the company going well?
0: It, uh... You know, it's only me at this point, so we're, uh... <laughs> We're, we're doing well because i I haven't taken a day off uh probably in about three or four months so wow so that that means we're doing well,
1: yeah <laughs> you're working hard,
0: my friend now what is that a Bob Marley poster in the background i see
1: it yeah it, it actually it's a drawing that Hannah did you're kidding no unbelievable yeah she's she's good and getting better all the time all this creativity man it's crazy.
0: So how was, uh, it looked like you were in Brooklyn last week, uh, and it's so funny because we were up in Boston, but how was, uh, how was Brooklyn?
1: Good. Um, my brother-in-law lives in Carroll Gardens, which is yeah. a nice section, and we were there two nights. We spent one night in Manhattan because I spoke to the Duke Ellington Society at St. Peter's Church on Lexington Ave. Okay, yeah. I, I, was, I was there with Greg and um, Paul back in O two.
0: Very interesting. So how, how did the speech go?
1: It went really well. I had to talk for a whole hour, so I was a little nervous, but uh, it went well. I mingled in a little bit of music, but it went well. And there was a member of the Ellington Society is a guy who played trombone with Duke Ellington. And he announced to everybody that uh, I captured the Duke he knew in the book, which is nice to hear.
0: You know, as I, as I read the, um, the sort of notes in your books, so that, that's sort of a common theme that, that I keep hearing, that how, how you have been able to almost channel the spirit of these musicians in your writing. Well,
1: it, it helps, you know, doing all the reading I've done, plus the fact that I know a couple people who knew Armstrong and Ellington, so I've been picking their brains for years.
0: Wow so how did you so I mean I guess we'll kind of roll right in but how did you become such a jazz fan so actually take me back to growing up where you grew up you were born in
1: New Rochelle New York
0: New Rochelle New York and you you lived there till how long remind me
1: I moved to New Hampshire with my parents when I was four my four dad years. got transferred to Boston
0: four years old what was it like moving from New York to New Hampshire at four years old
1: um, I was leaving both sets of grandparents, so that was hard. Um, I loved my home in New Rochelle. and then New Hampshire. There were no trees. The neighborhood that they built, the developers cut down every single tree. It was in a valley, and in the summer, the sun just beat down like the Sahara. So uh, it wasn't exactly cool, piney breezes. Well, New Rochelle had trees and sidewalks and shade. And our neighborhood in New Hampshire had no shade with a lot of sun. So they, your parents, your they, parents visited in the summer of '64, and it was just this brutal high '90s heat wave.
0: So they uh, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, all these years later, now the neighborhood has trees. But my father and I, we go out in the woods. Dig dig up a small tree in the woods and plant it in our yard. Right.
0: Right now, were you, have you always, has your mom always been in that same house on Sanborn Drive?
1: No, we lived in a ranch house about three blocks away. Mm -hmm. They moved into the house on Sanborn in 72. Okay. 63 for the house uh, that was the ranch house and then 72 for the bigger house. So then you,
0: you spent most of your formative years in obviously, uh, New Hampshire. Yep. Grammar school, high school. Um, when, um, when did the fascination with jazz music start?
1: Well, my dad was always playing big band music around the house. He loved Glenn Miller. He played the Mills brothers, uh, Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra. So I loved the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Neil Young, the who, but I loved my dad's music, too. It wasn't old fart music to me. I just liked it.
0: Right. So kind of at an, at an early age, you uh, your, your dad was playing it a lot. And then when did you, you know, at, at what point did sort of the, the love of jazz kind of kick in?
1: Uh, Ellington died in the spring of 74. And there was a great writer, Ralph J. Gleason. He helped found Rolling Stone magazine. And he was much older than um, Jan Wenner. And when Ellington died, he wrote this incredible piece of writing called Remembering the Duke for Rolling Stone. And I'd read Rolling Stone, you know, for the rock and roll. And there was a, this in-depth article on Duke Ellington, who I knew my father liked. And it made me realize that Ellington wasn't just this suave entertainer, but this really profound artist. So reading that one article by Ralph J. Gleason made me want to start reading books on Ellington and then other jazz figures after that. The first jazz writer I really got into after Ralph J. Gleason was Nat Hentoff. And then years later, to have Nat Hentoff, you know, saying nice things about my books was a little That's
0: It's got to be one of the greatest um, sort of uh, compliments to an author is to to say how well you captured the spirit of a, I mean, not just a character, but a fictional, as a a living, you know, a former human being on this planet. You kind of...
1: Well, the first time Nat Hentoff called me, he said, did you know Duke Ellington? I said, no, I was 15 when he died. He said, well, I knew him for over 25 years, and the Ellington in your book is the man I knew. How did you do this? (laughs) And I just said, well, a lot of reading, a lot of listening, um... Watching uh, interviews with Ellington to kind of pick up his cadence the way he spoke. And again, a lot of reading.
0: Now, I mean, obviously, you did that for your book, Writing um, uh, on Duke's Train, which, what was that published about two years ago now? Um,
1: 2011. 2011. And it's, it's now being made into a movie. You know, a, I, I heard a, bits and pieces about that. An Emmy award-winning filmmaker, Ken Kimmelman, he's won Emmys for Sesame Street, Clifford the Big Red Dog. He has optioned it to make a feature-length um, animated film. He's found a producer, and things are underway.
0: Now, you, you're probably
1: busy writing the, uh,
0: the screenplay for that, then?
1: I wrote it last summer.
0: Okay. So, So how, how different is it writing a screenplay from writing a novel?
1: Screenplays basically a play. When you already have the plot of the novel already mapped out, it makes it a heck of a lot easier. Sure. Um, you know, ninety percent of the dialogue that's in the novel is in the screenplay. Excuse me, but um, Ken Kimmelman had to give me an education on film terms for all the stage directions because it isn't as simple as saying. Um, you know, character runs across screen, it's camera zooms in, pans back. So he put a lot into the stage directions.
0: Okay, so it was more more of a collaboration at that point.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Now, I know that uh, Writing on Duke's Train was the first book that was published, but was that the first book that you had ever written?
1: No, I wrote a novel on, on Louis Armstrong. Um, I called it um, Little Fred and Louie, but the publisher thought that kids that age might rebel against anything with the word "little" in the title. Sure, you know, no twelve, no self-respecting twelve-year-old wants to go back to being little. So, um, it's I changed the title to "Travels with Louis." But I wrote that before the Duke book.
0: So, did tell me this story, I mean, how? So, if you wrote that one before the Duke book, why did it come out second?
1: Um, the Duke book got published first, basically. Um, I had publishers telling me these are great stories but no kid is interested in jazz and that was the point to maybe make young people interested in jazz but a lot of kids are because almost every middle and high school has jazz bands and they're playing music by Duke Ellington and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and so on and um, a lot of kids are interested in jazz
0: You know, so as so as not only the author of these stories and and a fan of jazz, but just just kind of knowing what you just said, um, kids are into jazz, yet a publisher um, who very nicely compliments your stories, but says kids aren't into it. How did that make you feel inside? I mean, were you were you burning up mad because of that? Did you have a lot to prove to them?
1: Yeah, I was frustrated because that's the whole point to writing the stories, was to maybe open a few kids' eyes into seeing how much joy this music can bring into your life. And the letters I get from students across the country, they're all saying the same thing. Um, After reading your book, now my iPod, my iPod excuse me, is filled with Duke Ellington music. Or since reading your book, all I'm doing now is listening to Louis Armstrong. I love it. So when I get letters like those, you know, it's music to my ears.
0: Yeah, I get it. I can uh, I can imagine. Um so with with the success of these two uh these two books, what's uh what's in the chamber? What's next?
1: Um I've been told to maybe think of a female protagonist, so I'm kind of kicking that idea around, maybe um a young girl who Maybe could uh, join the Count Basie Orchestra in the late 30s after Billie Holiday left and um, go with that. I've also been asked to maybe take Danny from Duke's Train a couple of years down the road. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I could have Billy Strayhorn in the band, who was an incredible composer. Ellington hired him as um, an arranger, but it turned out he was a great composer um, himself. And Billy Strayhorn was fighting the good fight on two fronts. In the late 30s, he was African American and he was an openly gay man. Um, he wasn't promiscuous, he had a long time lover, but his attitude was this is me, deal with it. So he was a very, very um, ahead of his time kind of man. And he wasn't big, he was uh, a small man uh, physically. And his best friend was, um, his best female friend was Lena horn she said he looked like a little brown baby owl. And that kind of sums <laughs> up what he looked like. But Billy Strayhorn had the heart of a warrior. So if I portrayed him correctly and, you know, do him justice, that could be an interesting book.
0: Now, so, you know, there's obviously the, the books are filled with jazz, filled with music, filled with a lot of trivia. Um, but there's always that an undercurrent to the stories. um, you know there's always a you know a little bit of a nod to the racial racial tension that was you know unfortunate but um that was reality at at the time of when these stories are taking place um you know how did you come to sort of uh, you know sympathize empathize with sort of those realities that african-americans and musicians um, were facing back in a time well before you were born
1: yeah well, you know, it, it, it's empathizing, but I was with a friend in a nightclub in San Diego in the summer of ninety, and um, my friend was is African American, and he was kind of surrounded by a few punks, and he broke away from them, went into the bathroom, and my friend was crying, and my friend's not small; he's six foot eight, and he was weeping, and we, what's wrong? And these punks had called him the N word. So I saw with my own eyes how that one simple nasty word could bring a grown man to tears. But then again, it's reading, too. Um, I'm good friends with a man named Jack Bradley. And Jack was Louis Armstrong's – I'm sorry, his photographer and his um, dear friend for over 20 years. He was the road manager of Errol Garner, but he was Louis's photographer. And he told me stories like – 1959 in Italy, Louis Armstrong is asked by the Pope to come to the Vatican to meet the Pope. So Louis was honored. So Louis and his wife went to go meet the Pope, and I believe it was Pius, and he said, uh, Mr. Armstrong, do you and your wife have any children? And Louis said, no, Your Excellency, but we enjoy whaling every night. And uh, that cracked <laughs> up the Pope. So here was Louis in July meeting the Pope. Two weeks later, he's in Connecticut, back in the USA, with Jack, and they were going to a one-nighter. Jack forgets. It might have been New Haven, Hartford, and Jack was driving, and Louis had to pee, so he asked Jack to pull over to a rest area, and Louis got out of the car, asked the manager, who was white, of the gas station for a key to unlock the men's room. The owner basically said, I know who you are. I even like your music, but I don't let ends use my restroom. Sorry. Sorry and Louis Armstrong he'd already at that point been world famous for 30 years got back in the car Jack said gee that was quick and the guy said Jack refresh my memory a couple weeks ago I was in Italy and the Pope wanted to meet me and here in my own country I can't even take a piss so stories like this are just legendary yeah. when you read about these jazz musicians. Nat Hentoff was told by Duke Ellington Duke in the 60s, you know, he's a 60-year-old man. He's one of our foremost composers, wanted to buy a pack of gum in Chicago. And, you know, a teenage girl behind the counter said, oh, we don't serve black people here. Sorry, sir. So the indignities that these people had to face were just incredible.
0: And, you know, you're talking about, you know, Chicago and you're talking about Connecticut. You're not talking about the Deep South.
1: No, no, not at all. I I was friends with a Holocaust survivor who passed away, and summer of 1948, the Holocaust survivor and his wife met their first friends in the USA, a black couple. And the black couple took my friend and his wife to a Boston Braves game. This is Boston. After the game, they walked to Kenmore Square, and my friend and his wife wanted to treat the black couple to dinner. And they went to a restaurant, and the hostess said, I'm sorry, um, we don't serve— Black people in this restaurant. So, even in Boston in 1948, and that totally shocked me. And I asked my friend too, I said, What was your reaction? He said, I had tears in my eyes. I'd left Nazi Germany thinking I'd left this kind of racism behind. I didn't think it happened in the United States.
0: Yeah. And that was, you know, remembering um, in uh, Riding on Duke's Train, you know, one of the sort of the pivotal scenes. Uh, you know, of Danny um, in, in Germany, and he had to get back to the, uh, the train without getting... He got. They were, they were stopped by Nazi guards, weren't they? I they were
1: chased, chased by Nazis. In reality, um, Ellington's men were held up in the Hamburg train station for most of the day, um, but nobody was soft enough to leave the train. I think a couple of the musicians said, geez... Hamburg must have a must have great hamburgers in this city, but they uh, got talked out of leaving the train. But in the world of fiction, you can make whatever you want happen. So I had the musicians leave the train and get uh, chased by the Gestapo.
0: Well, it it adds for a bit more drama and a little more page turning, I assume. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Now, when you know, so so putting putting the books aside for a second, you know, before you were an author, you were are a teacher when did you know, you know, at what point when you were growing up in New Hampshire in that treeless town yeah. that you lived in, at, at what point, you know, maybe you were looking for shade, at what, at what point did you, did the light bulb go off in your head and say, I think I want to teach as, as my career?
1: Hmm, um, it didn't. It was, um, as an undergraduate, I was an English major, I got talked out of becoming a teacher by guidance counselors who said, you'll never find a job right now, there's a glut, So I went into publishing for two years, Um, didn't find it remotely challenging and then I went back to school to get my master's in education and I found a job as a teacher. So it wasn't until I was in college that I thought I might like it to tell you the truth.
0: Okay. And then um, you go to college, where did you go to college?
1: Keene State, New Hampshire. Keene State. Uh, Which did have… Which had what? Which did have trees.
0: Well, I would hope so. I would have, Somewhere in the state of New Hampshire, I would hope there'd be some kind of a treat. Yes. Um, so, you're at Keene State and then uh, English major. When did mm-hmm. you, what was your first year teaching?
1: First year teaching was 84, 85, um, Barnstable High School on Cape Cod.
0: Okay. And you never left. I mean, you never left Cape Cod in terms of teaching, did you?
1: No, I've been teaching there since 1984.
0: 1984.
1: I was 19 years a high school teacher, and then I wasn't tired of high school kids. I just wanted a new challenge with different books, a different curriculum. So I became a middle school teacher, and now I've been a middle school teacher for geez, 10 years.
0: What's What's the biggest difference you find between? Because I'm about to have three middle schoolers next year. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, what's the biggest difference you find between you know uh, middle schoolers and the rest of the world? Because I just hear. Uh, I hear we're in for a little bit of, a couple more challenges next year.
1: No, I I find most middle school kids to be a joy, to tell you the truth. I mean, they're still unformed. They're trying to find themselves. The girls definitely have um, a bit more together than the boys. They're more self-assured, most of them. But you meet so many great guys, too. You really do. It's a great age. People... Uh, find out I teach seventh grade and it's almost like I'm a lion tamer going into the cage with a whip and a chair. Right. But uh, they're not that hard to tell you the truth. They're really sweet kids and they enjoy sarcasm and they enjoy humor. And uh, I've got truckloads of both of those. So.
0: Now, is is that the trick with, with connecting with that age group in terms of, you know, using humor, using a little sarcasm? Is Is self-deprecation part of that as well?
1: Uh, they love self deprecation. They don't want you to be a phony who takes himself too seriously. If you do that, you're lost. What I've heard, I've never had really any troubles with kids over the years. And what I hear over and over is you treat us like we're human beings. And you know, I say, well, you are, aren't you? And it doesn't mean that, you know, hey, call me by my first name. We're pals. It isn't that kind of phoniness. But if you just show them respect and a little bit of humor, and you show that you haven't forgotten what it's like to be that age, and that it isn't that easy of an age. There's a lot of doubt and worry that goes along with being at that age. They really respond to that.
0: Now, your—I mean the two books that have been published really do focus on that kind of young adult target. Yeah. Um, was that important to you? I mean, was, was it important for you to sort of write to that audience you know, someone who is kind of not not quite a, adult yet, um, but certainly old enough to handle, you know, some of the subject matter. Was that, was that important to you?
1: Yeah, I, I didn't want it to be hop on pop, but at the same time, I didn't want it to be some kind of um, modern-day young adult novel with, you know, you know drug addiction and uh, just sordid things. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable writing about sordid things. But um, yeah, and I remember what it's like to be that age very clearly too. So um, in my head, I still feel like I'm 12 or 13 years old most days.
0: So you're not you're not going to write your next story about you know like uh, Louis Armstrong coming back as a vampire or something like that. No,
1: no, no <laughs> zombies or anything like that. Zombies
0: are big now. <laughs> zombies are big.
1: I know. I just don't feel like jumping on the bandwagon.
0: Jumping on the old zombie bandwagon. Uh, um, so what uh, what have you been reading lately you know what's you know if, if I told you that I needed a book to read for myself uh, besides Travels with Louie or uh, writing oh, the Train.
1: Gone Girl is fantastic oh, I read it like, I read England. it I read it this past summer you know Wasn't I loved it, it
0: I loved it I thought it was great I, I love the twists mm. but the ending I just
1: yeah the wife did my, my wife didn't like the ending either
0: I think, you I know, thought, the, not, to, not to spoil it for anybody who might listen to this at some point in time, right, right. but I, I thought she kind of phoned it in. I thought she phoned in the, the ending a little bit.
1: But I, I thought it was kind of chilling myself that he's uh, rather frightened. Yeah. I think he should, do, he should do a disappearing act. No, but I love go. that. Hillary Mantel wrote um, Wolf Hall about the court of Henry VIII. And that blew me away. And there's, it's going to be a trilogy. And the second book in the trilogy is called Bring Up the Bodies, kind of a chilling title. That's what um, Henry VIII would say about people to be executed. In his mind, they were already bodies. Oh, Bring boy. up the bodies, although they were still breathing. So I, I want to get to that. And she hasn't written the third book yet. So Hilary Hillary Mantel's books on um, Henry VIII are unbelievable. So I really enjoy that. And I enjoy biographies too.
0: So I just read um well I just finished reading Stephen King's book 112263. Did you love it as much as I did? I couldn't put it down. Isn't it fantastic? I could not put that book down and I and I you know there's an ending that I thought was perfect.
1: Oh, uh, uh wasn't it wonderful? It was and great. that that little that little Texas town when things were going well. With the librarian. Oh, I'd love to go live there. Yeah. And then um, and then I can perfectly picture that diner with the portal in the back, right. back to that day. That is definitely in my top ten list of all-time favorite novels. It blew me away.
0: Yeah, I needed, Lo- some, I needed something light to, to read after that one because it was, uh, yeah, that was a marathon, that one.
1: Oh, wasn't it? That I, I'm kind of in awe of that book.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it's you know, I like to have my kids see me read because I like to, I, I want to get them really interested in it. And, you know, I got the, the girls are probably a little bit better than than Patrick uh, at it. But um, yeah I got Maggie. I mean, she she doesn't put a book down once she starts getting into it, which I love to I love to see.
1: Yep. Same thing with my girls, too
0: you know it beats the uh, the thumb exercises that they do on those uh, eye touch thingies
1: that they have exactly exactly they're trying to get you know iPads in our school and you know i've got about 8 years until i retire and i'm i'm kind of an old fart dinosaur i just want to have books in my classroom paper to write on and uh you know we do have a computer in the room to work on too with the typing but at the same time you know, there's enough pads in their life and screens in their life. Maybe my classroom can be the refuge from that.
0: Well, yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, I, and I, I'm guilty of having the iPad doing most of my reading on it. But a lot of that is for practical reasons. So I, I travel a lot. I don't, so, yeah. want, I don't want to carry, you know, three books with me. Because if I finish one um, on an airplane, you know, I need to pick up another one. And right. the, You know, the, the airplane bookstores are, uh, you know... They're not the greatest places to buy. uh, (laughs) It's saving money,
1: too. Yeah. And and you're saving money. It is cheaper. If I I traveled, I would buy right into it. But I don't. I, I work two miles from my house. I've got a library three miles in another direction. So it just isn't for me. But I do see the value of it, without a doubt.
0: But you raise an interesting point about, you know, almost too much technology because I think we're we're surrounded by it. And I'm certainly guilty. I've got every electronic device I can imagine on this desk, including hard drives to, to back up everything that I have digitally. But, <laughs> you know, it is nice to walk away from it at all. And, you know, there, there was a point in time where, you know, we could go away for a week and not have the ability to communicate with anybody unless we actually picked up the phone and called them. Now I get emails, you know, I work all my vacations. It's, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, you can't escape it. You can't escape. You can't escape. And it's
1: it's just, almost... The late 80s in education, we'd have meetings where we have to teach them how to use computers. It's the future. They need to know. And we did. But, you know, now my students know 10 times more about computers and the Internet and everything than I know and all the devices. So they know it. They were, they were born using it.
0: Yeah, so uh, getting back to to writing, um, what what words of advice? I mean, I, I imagine some of the people who will listen to this, um, you know, are aspiring authors. Uh, what words of advice do you have for someone who's who's who might wake up tomorrow morning, bust out a uh, a pad and paper, and start start writing thoughts down? What, what what advice do you have?
1: Be clear, be direct. Don't be phony. In the words of E. B. White, omit needless words, and um, just try to tell a fun story, a good story. So
0: there's there's certainly the storytelling aspect, right? Mm. So how do how do you, you how do you channel a good story? What about when the story is written and you believe it's good, taking it to you know taking it to a publisher, finding a way to to get it in the hands of people who who would you know benefit from reading it.
1: Yeah, you know, that that's the trick. I mean, I did have an agent and that didn't work out. And um, you know, now I don't have an agent. I found a publisher without an agent, but it's just not giving up. It's just trying and trying and um not getting too disheartened by the rejections. I have a um very fortunate thing happen. Jazz at Lincoln Center has adopted my books and they want to buy a lot of copies and get them into underserved schools across the country and um, basically because of this sponsorship by uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center I have carte blanche to keep on writing these books until uh, I leave the planet so um, you know it's a hobby that's become um, kind of a side career and I really enjoy it plus I've been able to travel and meet some interesting people through it as well but most importantly just hopefully getting young people willing to give jazz a try, because you don't need a PhD to understand jazz. You just need an open mind and an open pair of ears, and the music will do the rest. You know, jazz people are interesting, folks. If you go to a jazz club, you know, it isn't like seeing Bono that tiny from the 88th row. You know, it's in a small, intimate setting, and these jazz musicians are more than willing to have conversations in between sets. So I, I would just recommend to people go to the Vanguard, go to the blue note in New York or Birdland, go check out a couple of shows and, uh, you know, have a conversation with the jazz musician. All
0: right. Very good. Now where, where can people pick up travels with Louie and riding on Duke's Train?
1: Hope they do. They can get it from leapfrog press. It's at most independent bookstores across the country or amazon.com or, uh, BarnesandNoble.com.
0: All right, very good, Mick Carlin. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you very much,
1: Michael Carlin. All right, from one Michael from one Michael Carlin to the other. Take care. <laughs> thank you very much, and I'll see you in the summer. Thanks, buddy. righty.